It's my great privilege to tell you that the winner of the Golden Man Booker Prize selected by the British public who had the names presented to them of the chosen ones from each decade is The English Patient by Michael and Dacci. Hello and welcome to the Southbank Centre Book Podcast with me, Ted Hodgkinson. This month we're bringing you highlights from the Man Booker 50 Festival across all of our spaces. We had incredible pairings with Hilary Mantel in conversation with Pat Barker on the opening night talking about historical fiction. We had Marlon James and Alan Hollinghurst on the, on the Saturday morning, which is a really fascinating insight into the two writers who clearly mean a lot to one another. Howard Jacobson talking about why the novel matters. One of the real highlights was Kazuo Ishiguro and Michael Ondaatje in conversation about boyhood thrillers, about their lives growing up and how that shaped their fiction, and also about their notebooks, giving us insight to their practice. We've also heard from Roddy Doyle and Paul Beatty about the comic novel, the future of the novel with a host of writers. So we've really covered an incredible breadth. And we've just finished this evening with the Golden Man Booker Prize, which has featured actors reading, bringing to life books selected from five decades of the prize. So it's really been an expansive and capacious weekend, completely packed full of literary brilliance and a really interesting temperature taking of the novel as well. And we've really delved into the state of the novel and I'm really pleased to report it's in rude health. So I'm actually backstage at the moment in the Royal Festival Hall. We're in the corridor just outside the green room where the actors and the authors and publishers are sharing a glass of wine and celebrating Michael Ondaatje's win for The English Patient, which was selected as the Golden Man Booker winner. That's the best book selected from across five decades. So there's a lot of hubbub and excitement back here. Um, some of the authors uh, are here too. Penelope Lively is, is with us backstage. Um, and we've also heard from George Saunders from afar. Good evening, uh, George Saunders here. I'm very uh, grateful to have been selected uh, to represent the last 10 years winners of the Man Booker Prize. Uh, and I'm very sorry I couldn't be with you tonight, but I had a pre-existing teaching commitment that I felt I had to honor. So I spent some time this week thinking about larger trends during the last 10 years. In the end, the best I could come up with was same as it ever was. People trying to be happy succeeded. Others, not so much. Man was wonderfully clever until his cleverness proved his undoing. The strong oppressed the weak, the weak oppressed the weaker, except when for reasons no one could quite explain, they suddenly helped the weaker. Holidays turned out better than expected, except when they disappointed. But I think it's safe to say that at this moment, we are in a period during which materialism, violence, and autocracy are gaining in strength. And it's tempting at times like these to require art to do more, to be useful in resistance. But art must be allowed to work in its own sometimes quiet way. Art can serve resistance to evil best, I think, by arguing via its methods that the world is understandable to us and that as we understand it better, we will love it more. It teaches us increased comfort in the face of mystery and ambiguity. It makes us temporarily more alive, renews our relation to language and therefore to the world itself. As I wrote this, I was sitting in a hotel lobby in Athens. Across the street, a tree shimmered in the wind. Well, actually about half of it did. Or rather, the entire tree was shaking in the wind, but only the right half, lit by late day sun, was shimmering. 
my view of the tree was divided by, in the foreground, another tree, in a planter just outside the window that neatly divided the sun shimmering right half of the tree from the shady left half. A half that seemed somehow more sedate, humble, and mature than the frenetic partying right half. The tree was there when I sat down, then I noticed it. And as I tried in a notebook to casually describe it, that tree became more real to me. And maybe just now for you too. And you exist more for me, and I exist more for you. Here we are, tree, you, me, all slightly more here. Is the world still sporadically cold and violent? Yes, we won't stop that with words. But we can brace ourselves with words. By describing the world in words in the form of a story, we open the world out, fill it with detail, find more in it. And some of what we find may be good and even helpful to us. When I started writing Lincoln and the Bardo, I thought I was writing about grief and loss, and I was, of course, but the book also had something else in mind. It wanted, I found, to model what I've since come to think of as viral goodness, a phenomenon wherein a group of people mutually inspired, find themselves engaged in a larger task of goodness by way of small positive acts. I don't know that I fully believed in such a thing until having inadvertently invented an example of it while writing, I started noticing it everywhere. This realization had the effect for me of imbuing even the smallest act with moral import. It gave me hope to think that there might be occasions on which a force beyond our conscious control conspired to embroider upon the world a pattern of positivity. And I hope that the book might have the same effect on some of its readers. In, in any event, writing it was a great adventure, and being included in this wonderful company was an undreamed of culmination of that adventure, for which I will forever be grateful. Thank you, and I hope you're enjoying a beautiful evening. I cornered two writers and judges backstage. I caught up with women prize winning author and judge Carmela Shamsi, who was the judge for the decade in which the Golden Man Booker won, The English Patient by Michael Ondaatje. I also caught up with former publisher and editor and Golden Man Booker judge Robert McCrum. I just want to ask, start by asking you, Carmela, you've been involved across the weekends, you've taught a workshop, you were involved in a panel about the interconnected world and what the novel can do in the, in the present times. What do you think that this weekend of events, the Booker, has um, taught you about its place in the culture and how it captures the changing state of the novel? Well, I don't know if I can say that this weekend taught me because I, I think, I suspect I already knew it. Um, <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. you know, um, I mean, I think, you know, the Booker just, it has a particular resonance, it has a particular space um, within the literary culture and particularly, if, I mean, if you're a reader, you know it and if you're a writer, you certainly mm. know it. But it, it has been lovely to have the festival with so many of the writers who've won and been shortlisted and longlisted and to see sort of the audience excitement and particularly, I think, at having, you know, people like Michael and Darcher in conversation with Garcio Ishiguro or Peter Gary and Julian Barnes, Pat Barker and Hilary Mantel, the, the sort of bearings of these writers who, you know, by virtue of having won and by virtue of being fantastic writers are just at you know, a particular level of things. Um, and it's, it's joyous, I think, to find them together in conversation. 
And, and you have particular accolade this evening, being the, the judge who selected the English patient, which then went on to win the Golden Man Booker. Um, obviously, you're delighted with that news, but this is a novel that, as you said earlier in the evening, um, retains its freshness and perhaps feels more prescient than ever. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, and I suspect a lot of the judges found this with the books, that there were some that, you know, just felt as though they don't speak to the moment we're in anymore, really. And there are others which, even though they were written ages ago, seem to be in some ways more vital now than they were then. And The English Patient certainly is one that is fresh and thrilling. And, you know, I've read it a number of times. It's a definition of a classic, isn't it? Yeah. The book you can read, it rereads you yeah. again and again, yeah. in a way. Yeah. Mm. What he said. <laughs> <laughs> so, Robert, you were, you were judging the 70s. Yeah. How do you, I mean, we've just heard readings from across the five decades of the prize, and you've been following the prize and involved in the prize mm, for many decades. Time, yeah. And how, how would you describe its, its metamorphosis? Well, I think the thing about the readings, which were, which were wonderful to hear, it, it, was, it reinforced for me yet again, this pri- it's a kind of a mirror. The prize is a mirror. It mirrors the readers, it mirrors the writers, it mir- mir- mirrors the move and the shift of the English language, which has shifted through the works of you know, Simon Rushdie, Ben Ockery, and writers of that, that, that calibre. But I think if, if you put together the way, the, way which, the way in which the prize has evolved over these years and you hear the readings, you can see the way in which the booker is, as I said, a very true mirror. Mm. An unconscious mirror of our culture. It's, it's, it's staggering. I mean, it's all. Stra- it's kind of strange to think that, in a way, the Booker Prize one day didn't exist, and that since then it's become this kind of litmus for mm. for, for quality and a sort of lightning rod for discussion about what the novel well, is. That's partly to do with the simple fact of the, of the of the emergence of the English language since 1968 into this extraordinary phenomenon, mm. cultural, linguistic, commercial, political, and so on. The novel, of course, is like a kind of it's like the canary in the mine shaft. It tells you what's going, what, what what the conditions are. How are the but, conditions? But, well, I think one of the interesting things also for the book, and, and you could possibly speak to this, Robert, having read the books from the seventies, but from the particularly the eighties onwards, all that was happening in the seventies as well, is that you know the novel in the English language was becoming a much more global affair. Absolutely. And, and the booker, had, you know, sort of came into being at a time. And so, if you look at you know the eighties, and you have Rushdie, Ishiguro, Gary, you know. And if, and, I, if I can yeah. flatter you, Kamala, I mean, you are a very good. You know, when when Rushdie won the prize, mm. it was seen that the choice was seen as exotic and strange. Mm. And now here you are in 2018. You're the winner of the Women's Prize of Fiction, and it seems to be completely normal mm. and and right and proper. And no one's no one's making any commentary about mm. you being a. Pakistani yeah. writer, yeah. you are a writer in the English language mm. in, a, in a global form, and that's, that's an extraordinary transition. Another thing that seemed to come out this evening was that there's been an, a greater degree of formal experimentation, and that you, you, Robert, you mentioned that perhaps the novels in the, in the 70s um, preoccupied with questions of, of post-imperial life, not necessarily as formally exp- experimental as something like Lincoln in the Bardo. Do you think that bespeaks of a kind of um, playfulness and porousness that's come into the novel more recently? I don't really know, honestly. I mean, I think the truth is the novel has always reinvented itself. It's a, it's a form which can do whatever it wants, isn't it? It is, and I think, you know, it's also that books that now don't look as playful and extraordinary. I mean, Midnight's Children, when it was published, was like nothing else. I mean, there was, in terms of its sort of innovations with, with language, um, it was really quite extraordinary. I think the other thing about the prize, reading the 90s, um, is 
you see the it part of so Robert's whole point of the prize being a mirror to our times. Um, and one thing that really struck me with the books of the 90s, a lot of which were really wonderful, but I also looked at the shortlist, and there were six years in the 90s where one or fewer women were shortlisted. And you wouldn't see that That's now. I mean, yeah, no, yeah. I mean no. can you imagine a decade? In for, and at one point, I think there are five years in a row where the most women you have is one. Um, and you think, well, that was the 90s. It wasn't that long ago. Um, but it seems ancient, thankfully, already. Yeah. yeah. We're in another world now. And the interesting question which Bookerheads will have to address, I think, which I, sh- I should have said this actually on the stage, but I d- didn't come to me on, in time. This is the perfect moment. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> but the interesting question is, now what? Mm. I mean, the, it, it, it's embraced the English, lang- English language fictional culture by allowing Americans and North America in, but it hasn't yet resolved what that means. And I think that's going to be a very difficult transition for the prize in the next 50 years. What do you think the prognosis is, Kamala, in that 50 years? I don't know, but we'll still be reading novels. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we've still been reading novels. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows what the novel will be doing. Yeah. I just want to ask you one last thing. So there's some very wonderful stories about the Booker Prize that maybe don't get as much of an airing as they might do. And there's, I wonder if, if there are particularly lively moments from the Booker Prize's past. Well, this, is, this is a story which I don't think has ever been told on air before, but, which is astonishing because there must be television pictures of it. This was the year that Kerry Hume won for a book called The Bone People. Now, Kerry Hume is a New Zealander and a Maori, with other things, and she, The Bone People was a rank outsider, and for reasons I, I, I don't need to go into because it's just too tortuous, she won the prize. And it was a, it was a result of rather brilliant committee work by the, by the chairman. Anyway, she wins the prize. She, ha- didn't want to, she didn't want to come to the prize, so she sent from her collective in, in the South Island of New Zealand a bunch of Maori lesbians who decided to turn up in costume at her table. She wasn't there. there all these Maoris in, in, her, in, her, in her collective down in, in South Island. And when she won the prize, they rose to their feet in a body and, pre- and proceeded to dance through the aisles of the tables, celebrating the prize. It was a spectacular moment. Why aren't all Booker Prize parties like that? That's I know you really think, well, <laughs> things have been gained over the decades, but things have clearly been lost. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, thank you both very much for joining me. Thanks. When Alan Hollinghurst, The Line of Beauty, won the Booker Prize, the headline the next day was Gay Sex Sways Man Booker Judges. When Marlon James won the Booker Prize um, over 15 years later, the headline the next day was Drugs, Violence and Gay Sex Sway the Man Booker Prize Judges. Um, Marlon James' response to this was, you know there's a lot of drugs and violence in Alan Hollinghurst's novel. So maybe not violence actually, but certainly drug taking. Uh, he used the word copious in fact. We're going to hear now from a discussion between these two extraordinary writers, virtuoso stylists, who clearly have a great deal of affection and respect for one another's work. Marlon James said of Alan Hollinghurst's novel that it is truly hip, and Alan Hollinghurst said that I'd really like that to be on the cover of my next edition. Um, They are writers who clearly know each other's work inside out, and it's one of those rare encounters that a festival like this creates. Alan, um, I know that you read A Brief History. Was it last year? Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about how you responded to Marlon's book. 
Well, it was complete. I mean, I hadn't read him before, so that, I mean, that is just one instance of what's a great thing about this prize. I was sort of completely overwhelmed by it, absorbed by it. Fiction writers probably read fiction in a different way. So I, I'm always looking for lessons, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and looking for sort of related approaches and, and the idea of telling um, this immensely complex story entirely subjectively through a wide range of, of voices fascinated me as did the thing of, of the big jumps in time. And actually, it's something which I've done in the two novels that I've published since The Line of Beauty, of having big gaps in the narrative and the reader rejoining the story at a later point and perhaps at a different place. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the, the jump from Jamaica to New York and, and seeing the wonderful Nina Burgess character who keeps changing her name and, so, uh, and is mm-hmm. sort of a fabulously funny character too. So sort of structurally, I was, I was fascinated by it, as well as by the, the subject matter, which was kind of entirely new to me, really. Yeah. I'm afraid my hmm. sort of knowledge of Jamaica is almost entirely <laughs> dependent on reading your book. Oh, God, really? Yeah. <laughs> Marlon, I know you've said mm. that The Line of Beauty is your favourite Man mm-hmm. Booker winner, so obviously God, that does raise the, the question, have you? Here. <laughs> I've read nearly all of them. Have you? I've read Bernice Rubens' book, which I know most people haven't. But, but, yeah. but Alan's is your favourite. Mm-hmm. So why do you love The Line of Beauty I think one so of the much? reasons why it struck me, and I can talk about the ending of it first, um, is I think I'd read White Sargasso Sea right before it. And White Sargasso Sea opens with when trouble comes, people, you know, people um, close ranks. And at the end of this novel, when it's not homophobia that gets Nick in the end, it's closing ranks that gets him in the end. And that really hit me. Class had a way of absorbing even the undesirable, HIV-positive, but rich Wani. In a lot of ways, that struck me as more tragic even than the disease. It is this sort of um, a person daring to cross class because he crosses it geographically and he makes a big mistake. And I'm pretty sure it's from, uh, from, from Alan's book. I have this mantra, don't confuse having rich friends with being rich. Because you're going to pay. And it just hit me that way. I think also in in Jamaica, we we still have these debates about class and class versus race. And we say it all the time in Jamaica, it's not race, it's class. Um, When it really, it really is both. The other thing that really struck me about this is it was a year a lot of people were talking about Henry James. Mm. And um, Nick is a, a Henry James scholar, but the novel in itself in some ways to me was, was a sort of the best kind of um, reinterpretation of what a Henry James novel would be. So it struck me on, on, those, on those levels, a sort of um, comedy of manners, but also just how fantastically hip it was. Hmm. You know, I, uh, I'm very obsessed with the 80s because I grew up in the 80s. So, you know, the... the, the you know, I read it and I'm thinking of Tricky's lyric, Maggie this, Maggie that, Maggie means inflation. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, the, the scene with Nick Dance with Margaret Thatcher and, and all of that. Because we, we do have a sort of romantic view of the 80s and the 80s were terrible. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, this also really hit, hit me, the, 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 the AIDS still being a specter. Yes. but moving in closer and closer. I have friends who say it's one thing when you, your friend died from AIDS. It's another thing where your entire street is gone. Mm. And because, because I, we all know what happens next, um, it gives the novel this sort of ending. A lot of the bittersweetness comes from the context. I know it comes from the context I brought to the book. 
So now we're going to hear an extract from Genre Benders. That was a panel discussion that I chaired with four boundary-pushing authors, Eleanor Catton, Graham McKay-Burnett, Deborah Levy and Paul Beattie, um, each of them in very distinctive ways playing with genre and form and style and reinvigorating and inventing the novel and challenging and subverting old ways of doing things. Do you feel as though we're in a period now where those genre boundaries are becoming more porous or do you feel as though you have to come come on I'm the historical novel I'm the noir writer I'm the how does everybody feel about that do we feel as though we're in a period of of greater flexibility and and openness with genre or is it more defined everyone has to have their genre calling card I I, I totally recognize what Paul's saying I mean and I I get asked a lot about crime fiction and my other my other two novels are more obviously crime fiction novels but when I'm writing my books, I never, I never think I'm writing a crime novel, or especially with His Bloody Project, I'm writing a crime novel. To me, it isn't a crime novel or a historical novel. But as soon as your novel goes to your publisher, they begin to start to define it. How are they going to market it? And critics and critics and academics love categories, especially academics. They love to create boxes and then see what stuff they can put in and create a new box. Autofiction, you know. Um, and I think, I don't know, you know, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that people, you know, looking to begin their writing sort of journey would already be defining themselves in that way. I think that a little bit depressing, you know, that there, there's not a sort of freedom to just go and write some stuff. Yes, oh, I do think genres becoming more porous. But really, the truth is that all good, exciting writing, and I, in my view, all the best contemporary writing borrows from all the genres, why wouldn't we be influenced by film? Why wouldn't we be influenced by poetry? Why wouldn't we listen to music? And um, which I do a lot when I write. Sometimes when I'm stuck for words and I just want to find a tone or a rhythm. When I was writing something home, I played um, Nirvana over and over again. Um, smells like teen spirit because you know that chorus hello, hello, hello well to me it sounded like it could also be goodbye, goodbye, goodbye and I was got obsessed with it play, playing it uh, endlessly and it really helped me find Josef some, something, something a mood in Josef um, for myself I don't collapse genre I'm not calling a living autobiography a novel, mm. but I, I, I borrow from it. And there's a very good, for, pe for people who, who are interested in this, there's a really good article on genre that just hits it on the nose in The New Yorker by a writer called Arthur Crystal. You can look it up on Google, Genre New Yorker 2012, in which he writes about um, high genre really being understood as commercial fiction. Um, he writes about Raymond Chandler, who was a very literary crime novelist. Um, and um, he just says some quite uncomfortable things that I think are worth reading. Mm. Do, we, do we think that the high category still functions in, in you know, that, that sort of, because there is that contentious thing about literature being, you know, high and, and genre being low and that, that seems something that we're all kind of saying on this panel that that's an unhelpful category um, because actually 
that you were saying that that's something. Yeah, I think that a useful distinction could maybe be drawn between genre and form, because mm -hmm. it seems to me that um, the boundaries of form are collapsing. Like, I think it would be very, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody today who would, who would say to you with a straight face, at the end of a novel, the main character must get married. That's, that's, that is crucial to, to the novel being what it is. Or that, that if you're gonna write a sonnet, 14 lines is not enough. It also has to rhyme in this very particular way. I think we'd say, no, 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 as long as it's 14 lines, it's probably a sonnet. We can, we can kind of be, we can be groovy with that, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but weirdly, I think that genre, as form is becoming more porous, um, I, I totally agree with you about, you know, there's, we're, we're so kind of culture, we live in such culturally saturated lives with so many different kind of art forms swirling around us at all times and we're just borrowing constantly. Um, but, but weirdly, I think that, I mean, for me, genre, as opposed to form, is, is more a question of value judgment. Mm. Um, it's more to do with how the work is received and whether we, we perceive it culturally as something that is of value or, or not. Mm. And weirdly, I think that as form becomes more porous, genre is actually becoming more rigid, where people are kind of saying, this is, the, here's, here are the crime novels in the bookstore and here are the literary novels in the bookstore and they're, you know, never the twain shall meet kind of thing. Mm. Um, but actually, when you sit down to write, write a, a, a novel that involves criminal elements, there's, there's no formal requirement on you as the writer whatsoever. So it's quite weird. It's kind of like when you're alone in, with your computer, there's nothing, there's nothing stopping you from borrowing from whatever, whatever you, literally whatever you like. Mm -hmm. not, even, not even just whatever literature you like, but whatever you like. But then as soon as the book enters the world, it's kind of marketed in this very, yeah. in this very particular way that's laden with, with value judgment. So you weren't pressured by a publisher to have a wedding at the end of the luminaries? <laughs> well, I, I, I tried to tell my publisher that I, I really believe that the luminaries is a, is a children's novel, and they don't believe me. I, <laughs> I, I, I think that it's a genre book, but, um, but, but they, they didn't like that. Thanks so much for listening to this South Bank Centre book podcast. We'll be back next time with more highlights, insights, and lively moments on stage and backstage. 